Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Right, welcome everybody. I have to say today is the show number 15 of Science Stories. Dr. Christopher Cernari, thank you for being here. Thank you, thank you for having me. Of Good course. to be with you. Dr. Cernari, he's an assistant professor in the human dimensions of wildlife within the wildlife ecology program at Texas State University. He has a PhD in forestry and environmental resources from North Carolina State University. And your research interests include wildlife governance and policy and human behavior and decision making is that more yeah, or less that's correct that's spot on so you've been working all over the place you, you worked in texas you worked in north carolina in chile and um, also south africa Ma malaysia and even india right so yeah. i think the way we can organize this is let's get started in texas and okay. then we we can move around and, and okay. move to other places okay okay but first do you mind if you briefly summarize your lines of research please yeah um so the field is human dimensions of wildlife which is a uh, sub area of research of conservation social science so the focus is on people for better or for worse and uh and so within that area I focus on how to improve wildlife governance, um, which is kind of a loaded term. It's along with policy, often treated very simplistically, but governance is structures and processes of how we do wildlife conservation. And so I try to better understand uh, it from a variety of angles. Um, so we, I draw upon uh, political science, policy studies in particular, but also psychology, uh, sociology, um, sprinkle in some anthropology and a focus on culture. So kind of draw from a whole bunch of stuff, um, which makes it really exciting. Would you say you're a social scientist? Absolutely. Pretty much? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Um, quick question. I saw that you worked in as a human dimension specialist for four years in North Carolina yeah. before you started working in academia. Yeah, is that's that correct. Yeah. Is that, um, were you working in both or did you just started in the private sector? I was trying to break into academia after my PhD in 2014. And that was the I, it was a job I was offered was to be a the human dimensions researcher for the, the state wildlife agency. So obviously, I'm going to take that. But I worked really hard, um, which that, that agency was still on camp was on campus. Um, it's kind of like, I guess the state was, you know, leasing the land from the university or whatever. So that building was on campus. And so I didn't have to go far if I wanted to teach or get with my um, old uh, PhD chair, uh, my former PhD chair, um, and, uh, you know, drop by for a meeting and, and do some research and things like that. So I was straddling that line um, 
uh, a lot because this was my goal. My goal was to be a, a professor at a large university. So, um, so I was the state wildlife D human dimension state employee, uh, researcher and all that kind of stuff, um, working on state specific projects. Um, but I always had my eye on the prize. Do you know why you always wanted to be a, a professor in a big university? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the, the transition started in my late 20s. So I was an environmental health professional. So maybe some folks have heard of the term sanitarian or um, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of some other you know, public industrial hygienist, public health professional. So I actually had dreams to become an epidemiologist. Um, and I was going to get my master's degree and, and decided to go out into the working world after my undergrad and not pursue graduate work, um, even though I was encouraged to do so. And so I went through my 20s. I, I went to D.C. I made some money um, and started living that kind of like, you know, big person life. Um, I was, got married. My wife and I, uh, we moved to D.C. And I realized that, you know, I was commuting upwards of, uh, well, minimum three hours round trip to, to uh, downtown D.C. and, um, you know, sitting in a cubicle and it just wasn't, wasn't fulfilling. And so I, I, I thought and I'd heard from other people that I, had, I was capable of more. Um, and so I started applying to different grad schools um, thinking that I wanted to do something more, I guess we'll call it environmental or nature focused. I was a rock climber at the time, bodybuilder too, but bodybuilder transitioning to rock climbing. And so... Um, that was I, I read a story of an outside magazine or men's journal or something like that. It was a real brief thing about how the president of Gabon, a country in Africa, had created 13 national parks in the stroke of a pen. And the question was, what do you do with the indigenous people? And it was weird. Like, I just was sat there reading that one night and had an epiphany. I was like, that's what I want to focus on. I want to focus on why this is an issue and uh, why aren't parks the greatest thing since sliced bread. And that's what I went to go to go work on. I was also, you know, climbing some big mountains at the time. And so I thought I would also, you know, do, do some, uh, adventure recreation focus, um, in there as well. And so that's what, how the shift started. So I was 30, I think when I went uh, to grad school. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, and, uh, finished when I master's degree at 32, I taught, like I said, I was able to, to, to stay on campus. I was on campus. And I was able to teach. I got approval to teach. So I taught for, for a little bit. A couple of times I ended up teaching at the university level, always trying to, to make that shift. And then I decided about first semester into my master's that, yeah, I want to be a professional researcher. I want to be a PhD. Um, and so uh, that was reified early in my PhD career when one of my uh, professors at the time um, uh, said to me, um, if you want to change the game, um, then you should get a PhD. You want to change the game, play the game at a higher level, um, then you should do that. And so that's was kind of the, the, the final nail there. I was like, yeah, I always had, honestly, I'll be honest, I had one foot out the door a lot. You know, I just had a, you know, I was in my early 30s. I had a a, a child and was married and you know always had that pull to make money and stop living that kind of grad grad student life and so kind of when she said that um that's when i was like yeah i need to need to finish this I need wow to what a story yeah it's yeah. amazing hey thanks can we start talking about your work in texas yeah absolutely so you've worked with chronic wasting disease and you also worked a lot with the houston toad yeah private um, lands conservation yeah do you mind telling us first what chronic wasting disease is? 
I had to actually Google it before because okay. I, I knew you were going to ask me that question. And I, I'm again, I'm not a, like a I'm not a wildlife biologist. I'm a social scientist, but that disease is a, called a prion disease, and it's a protein that I, I think, if I understand it right, causes other proteins to fold abnormally. And um, it's highly transmissible among uh, certain species, particularly deer species, which you know many many people in, uh, care about. Um, and but once those animals get though that prion, um, which can be transmitted a number of ways, saliva. And once the saliva kind of gets into the into the ground, you know uh, the the animals are browsing and things like that. They can get it, and and it decimates a herd. Um, and if an agency doesn't have that going on in its deer population, um, wild deer population, not captive deer, because it's where it seems to be more prevalent among captive deer, um, it's, it's a, a nightmare scenario that state wildlife agencies are trying to avoid. Yeah, but you're not a biologist, so you studied it from the social side. That's right? correct. You yeah. went and you talked with stakeholders, and mm -hmm. you found out that they are willing to cooperate, right? They're, they are willing to cooperate, fight this disease but that they yes. didn't even know about it, right? Yeah, and so the two major stakeholders when it comes to chronic wasting disease are hunters, because they hunt deer, um, and then the other one would be uh, really large parcel landowners, rural landowners who have a better chance of seeing sick deer um, and having lots of deer you know, cross their, their parcels. So in this case, this you know, Texas Park and Wildlife Department uh, funded my lab to conduct some research that was led by my former postdoc, now assistant professor at Univer University of Arkansas Monticello, Elena Rubino. Um, and so uh, we did a huge study uh, focused on landowners and hunters in those areas that uh, chronic wasting diseases um, is known and kind of a hotbed uh, in Texas for, uh, you know, places that are hotbeds for chronic wasting disease. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, the landowners in particular, um, so we've, you know, published a series of papers actually um, over the last handful of months on this issue. And so, yeah, landowners, a lot of them don't understand. They, they've heard of it, but they don't understand what this is, um, but they know to be concerned about it. Um, but yeah, Texas Park and Wildlife Department wants them wants to find a way to reach these people right and the first thing that we found was that they they are aware of it but they don't understand it and they don't know how they can help so, and so the key would know. be good communication from the government yeah i mean one of the takeaways right broadly is better communication but it's how you do that right so it's really easy to say oh you got to communicate better but but really it's you know one of the jobs of my lab increasingly here in texas is how do you communicate and the same thing with in the private landowner a uh, case with um, endangered species, namely the Houston toad, which is how do you communicate? And there are ways we can break down segments of the public um, by you know eliciting, surveying them, eliciting certain types of uh, attributes about them, uh, testing different uh, methodologies in order to get those folks to um, provide us with you know some sort of data that allows us to create a typology of landowner um, based on, for example, you know, um, maybe how they want to be communicated with, right? So I think one of the things from that, that chronic wasting disease study was, was finding a way to um, capacitate landowners to come to TPWD to elicit this type of information. Um, and, and there are, um, that allows, gives landowners a sense of control, but it also allows them to have a sense of contributing to a broader problem. So you have to, instead of just telling them what to do, you have to make them particip 
participate in the project as well. Yeah, you have to find out how to motivate them to participate, right? And that's that sounds really simple, but there are kind of really nuanced ways that we can look into that. Like we did with the Houston Toad study, we looked at, you know, we applied organizational impression management theory, um, which is something my, my PhD student, Jarek Messick's working on. Um, so how do uh, landowners perceive the agency when it comes to wildlife conservation, endangered species conservation? And so we can actually have kind of like a, a battery of questions, if you will, or different attributes that TPWD thinks they should be, but does that lined up with what landowners think they should be, for example? So that's how we kind of marry theory and practice. Can you tell me a little bit more about the Houston toad situation? What, what, was, sure. the, what was the scenario there? Yeah, that's, that's kind of like a canary in the coal mine type of uh, species. It's critically endangered. Um, and so uh, the, the fire uh, back in 2011 really decimated populations, which are already, it was, you know, clinging by a thread and so the fire came along and that's located you know, de you know debatably anywhere between eight and 12 counties uh, in kind of east central Texas. It has a particular type of um, soil that it likes and a particular particular attributes about its habitat. Um, Sorry, is this toad endemic from here, from Houston, from those yes, countries? Yes, yeah, it's okay. a native. It's so a if native it disappears toad, yeah. there, it, it's gone. Yeah, if it disappears, it's gone. And there's uh, not many left, right? That's just why it makes it critically endangered. Um, but it's also indicative of the health of the landscape in terms of uh, habitat, not only for the toad, but other species. And so uh, we did, uh, my PhD student in particular, Jared, came aboard. He was my first, master, or my first graduate student as a master's student. He went out and he conducted interviews with um, folks who uh, were uh, either knew about Houston toad conservation or endangered species conservation or had large parcels. Um, and, and was really able to go nice and uh, nice and deep uh, with those folks. And then we scaled that effort up into a quantitative survey of, I don't even remember, 10,000 or so landowners all across the Houston Toad Range to better test theory. Um, and so we, what we found out is that um, a number of things, but if you focus on just the toad, then um, it's kind of a non-starter. So really it comes down to Finding, building programs at the federal and state level that are designed to conserve and protect endangered species, but that integrate landowners into the larger framework based on things that we really don't have answers to how to reconcile, private property rights and endangered species conservation, which is this paradox, right? We just can't figure out a way. So we tend to hammer the endangered species upon landowners, but that's that's not how you do it. And so they have their own, what we found is they have their own brand of stewardship. Land, they have their own land ethic. So we were able to go into these parts, survey these, these landowners and pull that and tease that out, pull that out and make some sense of, well, what does it mean to own land in this part? Have this animal here within the context of um, a whole bunch of other stuff going on. Game, um, game wildlife, uh, game species conservation, uh, pipeline building, habitat, uh, land degradation due to uh, you know the um, expansion of uh, developments, housing developments. Like there's a lot going on. Uh, different uh, transition from uh, sort of your old school landowner that was a rancher uh, type to people who are amenity landowners who are moving out from uh, let's say Houston, purchasing land just because they want a piece of the country. So there's a lot going on, and we're trying to figure out how does uh, TPWD and Fish and Wildlife Service reconcile all of that 
in order to propagate Houston Toad, but make the Houston Toad part of this larger narrative that is about conserving the landscape and building quality habitat and thwarting those threats to wildlife um, and its habitat in this part of Texas. So using the toad basically as a symbol to protect an ecosystem. It's a symbol for some people, right? Uh, for some reason, it can have a, be a positive symbol or it can also be uh, and, and be, uh, have a negative sim symbolism to it. So that's what we're able to find. And if you're a wildlife agency, you know, if there's a negative symbolism about an animal, you want to do whatever you can um, because you're mandated by the federal government if it's threatened or endangered to propagate that species. And that's kind of how it works. And so you can't just throw your hands up and say, you know, um, well, it's going, you know, the way of the buffalo. Oh, well, it's like you have to put this animal out there and you have to do everything in your power to keep it from going extinct. Um, Are you so optimistic know. about the future of the <laughs> Houston toad? I'm, not. Uh, um, I'm, I think, unique in this space because the books that I read and the literature that I read and that informs my thinking is rooted in a paradigm shift. That leads me to believe we need a paradigm shift. So, and I just wrote a, a book chapter, which I'm, I'm waiting for the whole book to come out. I don't really write book chapters, but I wrote this book chapter. And it really calls for a major shift in how we do wildlife conservation, which incorporates uh, and, and draws attention to our ideology that we've used, the tactics and strategies that we've incorporated for the last 100 years. It got us to this point, which is great. It propagated mainly game species. But... On the downside, the trends are what they are. Biodiversity at the, at the broad scale is trending down. Endangered species, threatened endangered species are trending up. So one of the things that I argue in that piece um, is that we need to, if we're going to get serious about a holistic approach, we need to think about wildlife conservation um, in a different way and we need to do it more holistically and we need to also pay more serious attention to the larger processes um, that influence the outcomes that we get on the ground. So, for example, political economy, right? Messy, legal superstructures, uh, things that people re really um, are problematizing in other parts of the world and critiquing. And so coming at wildlife conservation with a critical lens is something that I enjoy because I don't think that what we're doing and what we have done in the last hundred years, for example, which is when pretty much all this stuff got started, is the path to a sustainable future. Before we, we, we go and, and start talking about the red wolf, that is your, your bread and butter. Yeah. Much. yeah. Um, do you have stories of your time working in Bor Borneo? Bor Borneo? In the, in, the uh, in the human elephants conflict? Yeah, that one's still ongoing and um, that one's really... Uh, How is it pronounced first? Bor Borneo. Borneo. Sorry. Yeah, Borneo, uh, which is an uh, island part of Malaysia. So I was in Sabah, where the pygmy elephant is located, um, which is the smallest species of elephant. And honestly, I don't even remember how it got started. I, I was able to secure some funds to do international research. And I, I happened upon somebody. I honestly don't even remember how I happened upon uh, Farina Othman, Dr. Othman. She's a, a specialist in these pygmy elephants and she we got to corresponding and said i just happen to have a need for social scientist a human dimensions researcher would you like to come over and and do some research in the villages in sabah and help me better understand um human elephant conflict quote unquote human elephant conflict and so i was like sure 
And so um, we put together uh, an interview instrument and she went out with her team and then I flew over and I flew over right before COVID. So- um, Did you get stuck there? I did not because I was there two months ahead of time. So, but it was crazy because as I was coming home, I was in the airport and just across the South China Sea, COVID was blowing up in China. So, and I was actually, what's really funny is it, you know, the, the whole mask thing was something that is just part of the, that, of the, you know, the society over there for various reasons, right. To protect themselves. But also what I thought was interesting is people wore masks over there, um, uh, was already bef before the pandemic before the pandemic mm -hmm. um, so this is yeah, I was there was already articles about why people wear masks and they mm -hmm. do it to because they don't want to interact with people ah. so you could wear it on a train you know and just be like I just kind of want to be by myself and put my airpods in today kind of thing and so I'm here I'm reading about this and I'm not really thinking of it because we had avian flu like 10 years before yeah right and I was like all right this will pass too right kind of thing um, and so um, when I came home in January of 2020 it, like it was like I tell people it was like I was riding a surfboard on this like disease tsunami across yeah. the halfway across the world because they were sending if you came from China you went had your temperature checked um, and if you did it then you went over here and it was treated as normal and then you know fast forward two months later um, you know everything changed you know um, and so everything shut down here in the United States and pretty much everywhere and so that really screwed up all of the timing of that research right so they had lockdowns over in Malaysia and things we obviously had them here but over there they couldn't go out and conduct any any research and so we're still trying to finish that research over two years later now almost three years later um, so that was you know trying to better understand how the uh, Sabah government can um, can better uh, assist, if you will, uh, you know, villagers who are dealing with um, elephants um, that are just trying to make their way across their range, but their range has been inhibited um, by uh, palm oil plantations. So um, they're instead of going from A to B, now they have to go and go in a straight line, they have to go around and going around. Now they're going through villages. And actually, I just saw something um, Farina posted something. She has a nonprofit uh, called Saratu Atai. Is that an elderly woman recently was killed um, mm -hmm. by uh, within the last handful of days was killed by an elephant. I mean, you anger a pygmy elephant, even yeah. though they're small, they will they will put a hurting on you. They will tear your house down and, th and stuff like that. So, um, so I'm looking forward to analyzing that data here in the next few months. Nice, nice. Yeah. Doctor Serena, we need to do a short break, and then we'll be back with more Sounds science good. stories. Science stories. Science stories, science stories, We cannot change the past, but we can start today to make a better tomorrow.
All right, right now we're listening of the Abyss by Lorna Shore. Yes, sir. And before the break, we were listening to Out of Style by Limp Biscuit. And I mean, do you mind me asking you why did you pick the songs? <laughs> um, it's kind of where I'm at <laughs> right right now. So I've made a transition as a well, I, I'm a metalhead, and uh, I always had appreciation for music, wide range. So my son is going through everything from. From you know, he listens to everything from uh, Justin Bieber to Lorna Shore, which is his first ever band, and that's a deathcore band um, that he just was, you know, liking. So for me, why I picked these songs is I love the new Limp Bizkit album that came out last year. Mm -hmm. I think it's just uh, West Borland. I used to be a guitar player, played you know, I'd say half my life or so. West Borland, I think, just has absolutely sick riffs. And he's got some amazing riffs, and that one, Out of Style, is just a great Limp Bizkit riff. And then Lorna Shore, um, around Christmas time, I started, I, what happened was their, their song, um, Into the Hellfire, just blew up in 2021. And it probably came across, like, you know, YouTube shorts or Instagram or something, and it caught my ear. And I was like, what is this? Um, and it's not your traditional deathcore, death metal stuff. It's really big grandiose um starts out with like more cinematic stuff and then amazing amazing musicianship and they brought on new singer uh will ramos and that just sent them to the moon um and so it just all caught my ear and i went to my first deathcore concert um a few months ago down in san antonio had a blast i'm going to see lorna shore again second time this year when they come back to san antonio and they release a new album so um just that's kind of where i'm at right now it's just the evolution of being a metalhead i guess so as a softy in music yeah. myself, yeah. when you hear this kind of music, does it relax you or it pumps you up or like what 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 is it that you like from this music? I, I know it's like a, it's a weird it. question to ask, but yeah, I mean, uh, like I was saying earlier um, before we went on, is I had my I went through a softy phase. I was listening to Trevor Hall and Ben Harper and Sun Kill Moon, um, and I was thinking that's when I was uh, it was late. It was like 2008 to like 2012 or so. So I go through these phases. So, um, and so uh, the lyrics right now, I think because I'm on the, the other half of my life, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I've, I, I'm in the other 50% or whatever at this point. Um, and so the lyrics that Lorna Shore has come up with um, really resonate with me. Um, just about our existence. Um, and kind of that darker side of our existence and everything from, you know, birth and, and death and rebirth and things like that. And those, those lyrics are very poetic. They put a lot into the lyrics. And um, so it just really resonates with me. And then I'm also an extremely recalcitrant individual. And there's nothing more recalcitrant um, in society um, than metal. Mm -hmm. um, and in addition to um, I can work all day to uh, metalcore and deathcore. I'm extremely productive, and I think actually there's some science to back that up, is that metalheads tend to be more productive, if not an intellectual, um, and if you want to call it smarter, um, than the average bear. I'll so definitely have to look into that. Yeah, research. totally. Yeah, you can fact check me on that. No, it would be a really interesting episode as well. So uh, if we move on to the Red Wolf and your studies in sure. North, North Carolina. Sure, recalcitrant individual. <laughs> yeah, right. I really like your article about the discourse and how yeah. how the way we speak about something mm -hmm. affects our perception of it. Mm -hmm. And in this particular case, it delegitimized. Okay, this is a hard word for me. De delegitimized. The yeah, delegitimized. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. The recovery of an endangered species 
as the Red Wolf. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us more about what, what's going on? Yeah, so I'm fortunate in this space where I can dabble in different methodologies, uh, qualitative and quantitative. Um, and if I want to try stuff, I can. So I'm not rooted to a particular methodology. So, you know, um, if you're into machine learning, uh, maybe that's all you do. I don't know. Um, if you're interested in, you know, uh, using psychological methods or things like that, maybe that's all you do. I don't know. But um, when I first came here, um, I sort of had these bucket list things that I like to do or that I wanted to do. And critical discourse analysis was one of them. And a lot of those papers that came out of the Red Wolf um, or that, that invoke the Red Wolf case for me was because of my involvement, lengthy involvement in that project uh, to try and recover red wolves from about 2015 till 2018 and then afterwards as well. But really those are my prime three years. And so what I found um, is, uh, is that when people, discourse is a way for people to uh, wield power and get particular outcomes. Um, and so I was able to have the space and I the freedom if, as well, intellectual freedom coming from the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission, which is complicit in um, wildlife or the red wolf outcomes. And I wanted to be I wanted to evaluate the federal level, what they were saying, the state level, what they were saying, um, and then the actors on the ground and what they were saying, um, include in writing. And so uh, critical discourse analysis, um, that paper in particular was very liberating for me because that was me really fact checking people and holding them accountable. You know, some of the stuff that was that I found in there. Uh, Sorry, before you, yeah. you, you talk about what you found, can you tell the people what what is going on here with the red wolf? Is there this is this oh, is a yeah, case yeah. of our uh, species reintroduction, right? Yeah. So the red wolf was the first apex predator in the United States, if not the world. Um, that was declared extinct in the wild and then reintroduced. A lot of people don't even know that red wolves exist. Um, and so that most people are focused on gray wolves and then probably Mexican wolves second, but uh, red wolves existed throughout the, uh, the east, including here in Texas, on up through, some people would say upwards of um, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And so um, the federal government mandates uh, three self-sustaining populations of red wolves to be put back in its historic range um, and the first attempt was in northeast north carolina and um and then they tried in tennessee and like the great smoky mountains that didn't work and so they kept working on the north carolina one well they got the population up to i think it was you know at anywhere between 120 and 150 and then all of a sudden it started crashing um and so then you know uh, people started um you know hurling uh accusations at the federal government you know then at the landowners it were cries of poaching and and things like that but i think it was just really this confluence that started the population crashing and when populations crash they have to get people together um to try and bring those populations back up and troubleshoot what was going on and with all of the accusations of poaching and running them over uh as they're crossing the road and landowners not wanting them um, and then it turned into this really interesting, uh, you know, suite of um, conspiracy theory and really elaborate yarns to make sure that red wolves don't end up on the ground. And so it was this um, you know, prosecutions for accidentally shooting wolves. It was kind of this whole thing that was just uh, kind of ebb and flowing over since the early 90s, I would say. So 
So, so you took the approach of analyzing this, the way people talk about this red wolf pro problem, right? In order to sway the outcome. In order to sway yeah. the outcome. Yeah, and through, through discourse. And yeah. I found that it's really interesting that in the different kind of repertories that you found in, mm -hmm. in, in the types of discourses, yeah, one is named Big Bad Wolf. Yeah, yeah. How would you describe that repertory? Um, the best way to describe it is uh, the, the late Sen NC North Carolina Senator Jesse Helms um, when he was speaking on this on the uh, floor of Congress about red wolves would it, it would invoke certain adjectives about wolves that you would see from you know little red riding hood right big teeth um, it was kind of up to no good in terms of its body language right it was kind of uh, setting out to do bad things, right? And so the words that were used, which I could extract from Senate testimony, um, from newspaper uh, interviews um, and sound bites and things like that. So the words are there. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, you know, I don't have to interview anybody. I yeah. don't have to survey anybody. The words are there. And, um, and so that repertoire was really an attempt at swaying members of Congress uh, originally to vote against the... Um, the uh, Red Wolf recovery um, and funding it um, back in the 90s. So I don't want to get you in trouble here, but <laughs> why do you think they, they're pushing that? Um, the big, that repertoire or yeah. just... Or, or, or this movement against the recovery of this species? Yeah. Well, um, there... So it started with... Um, what, what I found in, the, in my interviews um, was that the saga of the Red Wolf started... Um, when the Fish and Wildlife Service um, had to deal with it, the first accidentally shot red wolf. And, you know, it's kind of a, where we're talking about is pretty darn rural North Carolina, a lot of uh, agriculture, um, mainly um, row crop agriculture. There's not really much livestock out there. So it was an accident. Um, they look a lot like coyotes. They're called sympatric species, right? And so people, you can shoot coyotes anytime, but you can't shoot a red wolf unless you have a permit. And that permit needs to say that, that you can only, you know, shoot a red wolf and kill it if it's in the act of predation or attacking. Like it actually has to be doing something. And so um, uh, then it happened again. The red wolf was accidentally shot. And I um, uh, was able to talk to you know, and interview people um, who were, some of them were actually involved, heavily involved um, in those events. And that's when the turn against the federal government came. It was kind of just sailing along, doing really well, the Red Wolf was, um, until the hammer of the Endangered Species Act started coming down on people. Uh, and if these are talking very tight knit communities out there, uh, one of the words that was used in my in, in interviews was cultish. They're very, um, uh, and that was from somebody who lived there. Um, they're very tight, word travels fast, and the words to be trusted are amongst those people that are living there. And so that just kind of built and built and um, into this, uh, you know, crescendo, if you will, um, where it started to um, affect people who had um, uh, a lot of time on their hands and a lot of resources. And one person in particular, who shall remain nameless, decided to make it basically their side job to derail this project mm -hmm. and had a lot of support from people. So it went from being a fairly uh, favored program to being uh, very detested by a, a large number of, of people out there. And those people happen to be um, very 
loud and very well connected within um, the community, but also within government as well. When you mentioned the coyotes, a question came to my mind. Something I read in your articles that yeah, this I, I read a phrase that hybridization is killing this program because the red wolves are hybridizing with the, with the coyotes. Yeah, uh, do you f what do you think is the biggest challenge for the red red wolf recovery program? Well, could, could it be hybridization? Could it be individuals like this that you mentioned? Yeah, it, there isn't one big challenge. I mm -hmm. mean, again, it comes down to a paradigm shift on how we recover these species, and I mean, this is a multi-hour conversation mm -hmm. in and of itself and so you know people don't want large carnivores on their property um and so you know the the there were like i said people who were well connected did not want these current large carnivores um these apex predators even though there was no attack on human beings um they were just occupying these lands um but uh, and they're not going anywhere and they're allowed to occupy the lands and people don't like that it infringes upon their civil liberties private property rights um and and you can't just take these things off the land you can harass them but they're going to come back and and it's taking away from the way people uh, like to live whether it's you know having wildlife on your land particular you know game species so you can hunt um you know things like that um and so the the communication breakdown Um, where it's, you know, you're wielding the hammer of the, the Endangered Species Act. You have people who are coming at it from private property rights, from a human well-being standpoint, right? It's the stress of having to live with these animals. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a contradiction and it's a paradox that, that we don't know how to solve. Um, people are, aren't losing livestock um, over these animals, but people can't hunt and shoot coyotes whenever they want anymore. And that's really what sent it into the stratosphere of conflict was when um, they could no longer in the five county recovery area when folks there could not shoot uh, coyotes any time of day, um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, because they look like red wolves. And so now you're, you're taking that, uh, what was a privilege away from people that they liked. Um, and so, Uh, they were, there's a lot of talking past each other. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a, they, there was some bad actors in there, um, that didn't, you know, they made bad choices, um, that did not ingratiate the public, uh, to, um, to the wildlife agency. And then all of a sudden there was the, the political, uh, side of things where the agencies, uh, the commission and then the fish and wildlife service just took opposite sides of the, of the spectrum. The commission sided with uh, hunters and landowners who did not want these animals on the ground. Fish and Wildlife Service has to uphold, you know, the, the mandate of putting these animals on the ground. And, um, you know, there's pressure. I was being, you know, being on the inside was super valuable because I could, I understood when there was a phone call that was made and all of a sudden, you know, the, the, it rippled throughout the agency, right? Um, and that phone call may have come from a legislator that was uh, representing that area, you know? Um, and then all of a sudden, everybody's scrambling, or there was a freedom, like, not kind of like the federal version of a freedom of information request. It was everything Red Wolf, right? Emails, reports, photographs, whatever. That person, you know, wanted it. And so, um, Uh, there was a whole bunch of stuff going on. You know, it seemed like every hand, every third month or something, there was something that caused, you know, some sort of panic. But I was also on the Red Wolf recovery team um, as the social science expert, the human dimensions expert. And so, you know, uh, I was able to use the quantitative data collection effort of the citizens there to just say, this is, this is, you know, the, 
what you what you know folks were saying just didn't hold up um, when it came to the data. I did a you know fairly statistically robust uh, survey of people out there, and um, it was pretty split between people who didn't want them, people who didn't care, and people who did want red wolves on the land. So if you have an agency, for example, saying landowners don't want them, right? Um, and, and then with the discourse, it's how they're saying that, right? The different repertoires, right? Mm -hmm. um, then that, that is an exercise of power. And that was all the things that I was interested in studying when it, when it came to Red Wolves, which is not just the outcomes and the psychological, the attitudes and beliefs, but you know, why were we getting the outcomes that we were getting um, when it comes to Red Wolves? Because what I found out is 75% of species on the endangered species list are dependent on human beings to exist, it's a concept called the conservation reliant species. So that was, you know, just one little thing kept leading me to this other thing. Um, and so I published a paper on the importance of conservation reliant species. And we need to get serious about conservation reliant species. Um, we need to get serious about reconciling the uh, large carnivore private property paradox. But the current structures we have don't allow us to do that, in my opinion. Do you think it's going to be, or it is easier if you rely more on public land than on private land? For example, the case of the reintroduction of, of the wolves in Yellowstone, that it was a pretty much a success, right? It, it, it helped the ecosystem so much. What, do you think that success, like so directly, and it looks easier than the case of the red wolf, it's because it's public land? I, and it, I, th I think that helps, right? Um, there, it's not something that, that we know how to do, is put apex predators or any other endangered species back onto private lands, other than you if it's on your land you have to have it right and that's the issue with the houston toad is if people identify a houston toad on their land they may not ever tell anybody about it and because it's a problem pretty much what's that because it would become kind of a problem right well, yeah, now you're you have an endangered species on your property yeah. and you have to make sure that nothing bad happens to that animal right so um unless you're given some sort of out by the fish and wildlife service so um you know you can you know maybe i don't even really know the ins and outs of it but maybe you can take away habitat over here kind of thing and you know that kind of deal and uh, and build it over here kind of deal but um but yeah you once you have that animal on your property you know, instead of cr thinking about endangered species conservation as, as an opportunity, it's seen as an intrusion by the federal government, maybe even a land grab or a rights grab. Um, it's a scary thing to have endangered species on your property. Um, and a lot of that, I think, comes down to just un being unaware of, of what a collaborative relationship would actually look like. Um, because each side, if you will, is so entrenched in the way that they've been doing things for so long that it's hard for them to think outside the box and imagine a productive relationship that's beneficial for um, society, for the species, um, and, uh, and for landowners who uh, have really critical habitat that can help propagate these species. Dr. Zernari, we, we, we need to do the last break. And then when we come back, I want to hear stories about what happened in Chile, sure. and how did you end up studying feces in India, pretty much? <laughs> Sounds good. Science stories, science stories, science stories, science stories, science stories, science stories.
Alright, we're listening to Die With Me by Type O Negative and before the break we were listening to The Three of Us by Ben Harper so I guess we're seeing your softer side here <laughs> Yeah, it's a holdover uh, Ben Harper there was um, just I think, it, well, as it's called The Three of Us reminds me of when I first became a dad uh, in back in 2010 so I think that's the that even might be his inspiration right, is, is that, uh, that kind of quiet space that you're in with you and your partner and your your newborn kind of thing so yeah i love that little melody it just repeats over and over dr serenary i hear that there's a story about a student may have disappeared doing research in chile or something <laughs> is that true or uh it was um a student that i was mentoring as a phd student as a, as a german student um that was in uh chile and operating and and working i, I think as an intern um, down there with an environmental research group. And uh, so we were collecting data and uh, my goal as a PhD student was to write as many and publish as, write as many manuscripts and publish as many papers as I could. And she just disappeared and she disappeared for about a month. But is this, okay, disappear, is she, she ghosted you or <laughs> like police search and like disappears, disappeared person? I don't think that there was a police search, but she was a in a foreign country, but she spoke the language, and I honestly I don't know the whole story. I, I heard that she had um, some sort of breakdown and just left, and I, I honestly don't know where she went. And eventually she came back, but it was like a month later, um, and so we kind of had to. We, we lost an entire month of data collection efforts, so we just had to cut our losses. And that's when I learned as a researcher how to make uh, lemonade out of lemons because I had a very small sample size. And how do you write that into a manuscript that, you know, our main data collector had a breakdown and disappeared for 30 days? I don't. I don't really. Yeah, I, I don't didn't come up with any good words to capture that. Yeah, so. I don't know. I don't think there's a special section in <laughs> in methods that. Yeah, you maybe. Can feel. I mean, you don't put that in the acknowledgments. I don't know where you put that. So. Wow. You kind of try and find the words for it, though. And then, what is the story behind your article about sustainable mountain tourism in India? Um, I know so that was a long time ago, but. Yeah, uh, I still talk about it a lot to this day. So um, I was afforded the opportunity to go to the uh, Indian Himalaya to to do my. Master's research, uh, Dr. Keith Bozak opened that door. He's over at the University of Montana. He was uh, conducting a study abroad um, in uh, among the Botia people in uh, Garwal, Himalaya. And so he said, hey, man, if you want to go out there and, and while you're there, collect your master's data, go for it. So I studied, um, again, being a recalcitrant individual, um, leave no trace. If, you, if you've all heard of it, right, every time we go into a, a green space we want to leave it as we found it if not better um, you know the whole saying of uh, take uh, only pictures leave only footprints things like that and so but what I was seeing in the literature is that there was a massive amount of uh, littering going on and and uh, other other behaviors um, and I thought the guides being trained which they were mountain guides which I found out were trained in leave no trace um, were complicit in that in those behaviors and so the cool part about my research uh was was i was trying to figure out why mm -hmm. um 
I was trying to measure the, uh, I guess, likelihood of preventing those uh, behaviors uh, like, uh, you know, having feces on the ground and throwing away your trash and things like that. I was trying to figure out, you know, what would drive people to follow Leave No Trace. Um, the guides in particular, they were mountain guides, so whitewater and trekking guides in particular. And uh, so I was in Garwal National Park and um, we were camping there for the night uh, and um, it was in, or, or sorry, Gango Tree National Park and we were camping there and one of my, I was headed to the river, the Bagirti River um, and uh, the guide says to me, oh no, 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 you don't want to go back there. And I was like, oh, okay, mm -hmm, sure, I'm not going to go back there. So I was like, there better be a, you know, really good reason for me not to go back there, like, you know, some sort of like, you know, uh, leopard or something yeah um but he's he just kind of was like no no no, you don't want to go back there it's kind of gross so i was like all right so i waited for him to leave and then i went back there and what i found was human feces laying all over the place um in a national park and um i tried to figure out and also it was within a relatively short distance of the Beguiti river and so um, when i tried to understand that behavior right of why wouldn't you perform leave no trace as a guide to help you know, maintain a, you know, a clean, you know, natural environment, if you will. I found out, for example, that um, handling feces in uh, the Hindu religion, for example, is taboo. It's an impure activity, right? It's an impure, the, yeah, right? And so impure. you will see um, uh, people going to the bathroom and um, outside of porta-pots. The porta-pots will be absolutely full, like they were mm -hmm. in this particular place that I was in. Totally full. And so um, you know, I don't know if that's part of it too, where people, maybe there was no resources to unload that stuff. I was, you know, that kind of thing. Um, uh, you know, fly in a helicopter and remove it or whatever. But in this case, um, you know, that's why you wouldn't dig a cat hole because it's, it's culturally, uh, inappropriate and taboo to do it. And so that's something I think that that research shed light on is, you know, look, leave no trace might be really good and useful in some cases, but it's not for everybody. And that's something we need to reconsider if we're trying to, you know, have, uh, uh, you know, less litter and feces and cleaner waters, not just here in the, in, in like the quote unquote Western part of the world, but in other parts as well. Dr. Serenari, to, to start closing this interview, mm -hmm. do you mind if I ask you a little bit more personal questions? Yeah, sure. Fire away. So you said you were a bodybuilder yeah. and also a climber. Yeah. Which is your... So first of all, it's, that's a weird combination, right? <laughs> Don't you think? Like it's in, you pu you're pushing your bodies in two different directions, right? Yeah. Well, I, tra I was transitioning out of bodybuilding after eight years. So okay. I was like 130 pounds soaking wet. I mean, I stopped growing in middle school pretty much. And so um, I decided uh, there was a bodybuilder uh, named Lee Priest. He was went about 5'4". Um, and his uh, motto was something along the lines of, if you can't be as tall as them, be as wide as them. And so I adopted that. So I bodybuilded for about eight years. I wanted to, to compete. Um, I didn't do that because I kind of started getting some injuries. And then my wife bought me a learn how to rock climb. So in Northern Virginia, we had an amazing uh, indoor climbing gym and we we're not too far from the New River Gorge in West Virginia, which is a sport climbers paradise. And so I transitioned. I started transitioning to doing more outdoorsy stuff. I was backpacking and things and that was kind of my evolution as being kind of like an outdoorsy person. And then I got into mountain climbing. So I climbed Mount Baker and Mount Rainier 
Um, and then I transitioned to whitewater climbing after I had a, a shoulder injury or whitewater kayaking. I had a shoulder injury um, that I transitioned out of climbing. I was a new dad. It was hard to find uh, partners to climb and maintain that level, you know, pushing 512 ability, um, putting the time in, um, particularly being a grad student, new dad, things like that. So I transitioned to whitewater kayaking, which was easier to maintain that skill level and only go out once or twice a month. Um, yeah, and then from there, I transitioned to um, uh, hockey, ice hockey, which is wow. my favorite sport. Yeah. So, yeah. And so now I, play, I still play. I've been playing since 2017. And Here in Texas, you play ice hockey? Yeah, I play up in Austin. I actually got a playoff game tonight. I'm fired up. So well, good luck. Yeah, thanks very I, much. Are you also a skater? Uh, yeah, I started skateboarding because of COVID. So we couldn't really do anything else. So um, when we moved to Texas, I stopped whitewater kayaking because it's just really sketch and we don't get a lot of water here. Um, and so uh, I didn't didn't do that anymore. So um, I pretty much just threw myself at, at ice hockey. So yeah, there's a couple of three rinks now in Austin, and so I play at uh, one place called the Pond um, Hockey Club. And so that's that's where I go. I found that in your website, and mm -hmm. looking at your website, I like the style of your website because it's oh yeah, thanks. It aligns pretty much with the idea this podcast is trying to convey. Mm. That science is cool, mm -hmm. and your and your if you the homepage says cool guys doing cool stuff or something like that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I try to maintain a, a balance, you know, for everybody. And so COVID couldn't do anything, you know. So I started skateboarding, and then I had the, you know, you were you'd see the things about, um, uh, you know, the whole you know do a kickflip, right? And I was like, well, I guess I should learn how to do a kickflip. So I was. 43 and I did my first kickflip, you know, put it on Instagram, right? And I had a professional skateboarder comment on it, John Hill and stuff. So it was like super cool. And wow. I try to maintain, you know, go to concerts and things and try to make, make sure my grad students um, all have a work-life balance um, and, and not, you know, end up in having, you know, crying spells too many times throughout the year. So yeah, it's important that I bring on people of character in the lab Um, everybody's different, which is cool. Um, but people who are obviously willing to work super hard, um, but also, ha um, you know, have, uh, different interests. So, um, and everybody I think is very, very different. Some people like to hike, um, just brought on, on a new person and she's actually into metalcore and deathcore. So she's actually going to bought a Lorna Shore ticket. She's going to go, um, you know, we've got other people that love birds and other, you know, we've got two people coincidentally, um, who, uh, do jujitsu. And uh, another another one's getting married really soon, so everybody's like super different and 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 you know uh, do different things, and that's, that's really fun. That's really cool, yeah. yeah. And this might be not appropriate for the radio or or a podcast, but I started doing this activity that I use an artificial intelligence artist, uh -huh. and I give give it a prompt related to the, to this episode, of course, and it projects an image, it creates an image. I'm gonna show you this image, and please describe it to the audience. And, and see if you can guess what I typed into the prompt, okay? Okay, describe it. Yes. All right, so it looks kind of like from left to right, I've got like some sort of uh, fuzzy worm looking thing and then like a, um, a furry skunk looking thing kind of with matted fur and then we're moving on like a, maybe a flamingo with no head and then we've got... <laughs> um, an antlered mushroom with uh on on like a, a a really small camera tripod and then we've got another headless flamingo 
That's what I see. Can you guess the prompt? Oh, the the I, what you typed in? Yes, to create that headless image. wildlife. I, I'm not sure. Okay, you got one there. Right, I wildlife. I I said yeah. Why I I typed. You want me to tell you? Yeah. Or, or you want to try to guess again? I I. <laughs> it's pretty hard. I know. Furry wildlife. I typed humans and wildlife trying to coexist. How about that? And then Dr. Seuss style. Dr. Seuss style. Dr. Seuss style. Okay. Yeah. I'm seeing it now. Okay. I'm seeing it now, for <laughs> sure. The so whole fuzzy, matted thing, very Dr. Seussy. Yeah, very cool. Thank you so much for being in, in Science yeah, Stories. Thanks again for having me. Did you have a good time? I did. It was a blast. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Science Stories. Wow. Wow.